The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Let me start with a definition. Guile. Guile means sly or cunning intelligence with charm. Guile, somebody has said, was mother's milk to the third patriarch that we meet in Genesis to to Jacob. Uh, And when Jesus meets one of his first disciples, Nathanael, Jesus says of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. But it could also be translated, um, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. Jacob's name had become a bit of a, of a punchline. If you know the story of Jacob, then you know that um, he, after making a really a royal mess of his home and his, and his family, um, through all his scheming ways, he comes and he meets God. And he learns to trust him, to lean on God instead of leaning into his own wits. You see, God would start with the, the man, Jacob, and forge a new man, Israel. May God do the same in each of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you that you you take um, those of us who uh, really start life, maybe all of us, uh, pretty committed to our scheming ways, to managing life ourselves. And, uh, And you invite us into the ring to wrestle with us. You invite us to wrestle with you. And Father, I pray that, uh, that we, as a result of that, we are changed more and more into the image of Christ, into really the image of what Jacob became as his life went on. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So in case you're wondering how today's message fits into our overall series, Abraham, we are, what we're trying to do is follow this, this blessing that God promised Abraham, and then it, was, um, it went to his son, Isaac, and now it goes to his son, uh, Jacob, the grandson of, of Abraham. So we're following it through. And let me just start off by telling you guys a little bit about the home that Jacob grew up in. When Isaac was 40 years old, Jacob's father, when he was 40 years old, he takes a wife, Rebecca. And sadly, for the first 20 years of their marriage, they're barren. And so Isaac goes and he prays to the Lord and God opens her womb and she becomes pregnant. Um, it says in the text that, that uh, um, it, there was a great struggle in her pregnancy. Uh, it says the children struggled within her. And so wondering, perhaps, what, what is God trying to tell me through this? She goes to inquire of the Lord. So we're gonna read that. We'll pick that up in, uh, in Genesis 25, verse 23. We don't have the, uh, the main text from Genesis on slides today. So you have to open your Bibles or your apps. But I'll pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 25 and it says, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau's the firstborn, he's the eldest son by just uh, a few minutes is the, is the sense we get, and he comes out covered in this hairy pelt uh, covering his whole body, it seems, and it is red. And so uh, they name him, very, really creatively, they name him Harry, which is what Esau means, it means Harry. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my first uh, pet that I got was uh, a dog, a Norwegian Elkhound, and they are black and white, and so I creatively named him Domino, because he reminded me of black and white Domino. Not that was really did not go over well. (laughs) That's that's as good as the humor gets, you guys, sorry. Man, I crafted that joke. But not the most creative uh, naming went on here. And, uh, but we find out that he was a man who hunted. He was a man that, that loved the outdoors, loved to be out in the field. And then his, uh, his brother comes along, uh, Jacob, and he is smooth-skinned is what the text says. And he grew up to be a quiet man, uh, dweller in tents, essentially like a mama's boy, right? Uh, and additionally, he came out holding his brother's foot, which really earned him his name, Jacob, because the the name Jacob or Jacob means may God protect. But it sounds an awful lot like Akeb, which means heal, which also sounds a lot like Akab, which means watch from behind, overtake, or trip up. So um, his name, along with his birth story, would really earn him uh, this reputation, the one who grasps at heels, the one, he who deceives, he who trips up. And really, in many ways, this was um, who Jacob was in his early years. You see, he was always busy looking for the advantage over his brother Esau. He was, his heart was filled, if you will, with guile. And uh, so he's always looking for those opportunities, and we're gonna talk about one of those opportunities in just a minute. But the other thing we see here is that right from the outset, as we read through um, the biblical text, is that he came from a very dysfunctional home. Very dysfunctional home. The, The parents played favorites, the parents wouldn't communicate. Matter of fact, really, there's not a whole lot of communication going on in the family. And, and finally, uh, Isaac, the father, really shirked his responsibility as the spiritual leader of the home. He just enjoyed the, 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 the fruit of the, of the field, the, the game that uh, Esau brought home, and, uh, and so he, has, he plays favorites and loves Esau. And Rebecca, we don't know why, but she favors Jacob. But perhaps he enjoyed more the rhythms of mom's day, learned her culinary arts um, than he did being outdoors in the field. Here's the thing, though. The truth is, if we would meet these two guys, if we'd meet these two brothers, we would probably like Esau more than Jacob. We'd probably enjoy Esau more than Jacob. He was the kind of guy that would slap you on the back and say, hey, let's go fishing, let's go hunting, then tell you all kinds of, uh, of shady stories to make you blush all afternoon. But he was good with people, people liked him. And later in life, he would climb the social ladder, he would become a very wealthy man. And perhaps it was these qualities that caused 
um, his father to cause Isaac, Isaac to take his eyes off of his responsibility to really be shepherding and caring for and noticing what was going on in the hearts of, of his boys. But that's exactly what he did. Let me just say, uh, give a kind of a PSA here, public service announcement to parents and grandparents. Um, favoritism is never wise. It does go on in certain homes, but it is never a wise thing. It sets in motion all manner of feelings inside the, the, the hearts of, of, the, of the children. Feelings of insecurity, feelings of fear, anxiety, feelings of pride maybe. And then some behaviors like manipulation, comeuppance, and even immorality. Oftentimes, the, the, some of these repercussions are not even seen as clearly when the kids are young, but as they leave home and enter their early adult year, sometimes these become very, very apparent and it's hard to track back and say this is, this is what was going on. Favoritism can destroy a home, it is never wise. It's not wise for the people of God, the body of Christ, and it's not wise for, to, to take place in our homes as well. Well, the Lord has spoken to, to Isaac, he's spoken to Rebecca um, that, uh, that, that he, he has made his choice in terms of where the blessing is going to go, who is going to receive the blessing. He says, one shall be stronger than the other, the older is gonna serve the younger. This was the prophetic word that God had given to Isaac and to Rebecca when she was struggling in her pregnancy. Um, so God had made it very, very clear. And the truth was, Jacob uh, as he was growing up, seemed to show a greater awareness and value for spiritual things. He may not have understood all that, uh, that it meant, but he seemed to be uh, desiring that more than his brother Esau. Esau, it seems, lived for his appetites. Esau was the kind of guy that just lived for his appetites, and let me show you what I mean. We're gonna continue on in verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau came to despise his birthright. So he'd been out hunting, fishing, uh, out on the land for a day, comes home exhausted and it just so happens, as if, it just so happens Jacob has a nice big pot of lentil stew simmering over the over the fire pits, right? No doubt it's probably upwind, knowing it's gonna, it's, it's wonderful aromas are gonna waft downwind for Esau to smell as he heads to his tent. And so um, this is exactly the, the trap that he has laid for Esau, and Esau comes to him and he says, let me have some of that red stew, I am exhausted. And actually what it says in the Hebrew, so some Hebrew scholars say that you could actually translate it this way. Quick, give me a gulp of that red, red stuff, that red stuff there. I mean, it's like he's dumb with hunger. Like he's a man who is so used to giving into his hunger that he doesn't even plug in his brain, doesn't even know what to call this. Uh, and he says, just, just, just give me some of that red stuff there. And, uh, and Jacob is all too ready Okay, sell me your birthright and sell it to me now. 
Now the birthright was a big deal in that culture. The birthright was, was uh, given to ensure that a family line had the best opportunity of success and flourishing in the succeeding generations. Uh, there's several different pieces to um, the birthrights. By the way, culturally it was understood that it would go to the oldest son, but that's really more just kind of uh, cultural superstition. It's not something God really ever paid attention to. Um, He knew the heart, he cared about the heart of the boys. So here's a a few things that a birthright um, symbolized and meant. The first is that it gave a double portion uh, of the inheritance of land and livestock to the, the, the son that received it. That was the first thing. Secondly, and really just as important, is that it looked to that son to function as the priest for the family. Like this is the thing that that Isaac is absolutely not doing right now, but it looks to that son to function as the family's priest, so it's his responsibility to shepherd the family spiritually and morally and relationally. And then it meant one more thing. This particular birthright meant one more thing because this one uniquely carried God's promise to one day produce the Messiah through this bloodline. That was the, 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 the big spiritual blessing that was one day coming and was promised to come to the line of Abraham and then we discover to Isaac and now we discover uh, to Jacob as well. So in light of that, guess which one uh, of those uh, pieces of the birthright that Esau's most interested in? He's interested in the money, right? He's excited about the the land. He's excited about the livestock. He doesn't care one iota about the rest of it. He really doesn't want to be the spiritual leader in this home. He don't want to care about those kinds of things. He is a man that that when his stomach screams, I'm hungry, he wants to give into it. I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? By the way, another way of saying that is of what use is God's blessing to me is what he's saying there. In a moment of hunger, he discloses what he really values and what his appetites desired. Hebrews 12.16 says this of Esau, kind of the commentary it gives on Esau. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, and that word unholy can be translated profane. So see to it that no one is sexually immoral or profane like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. I love what John Phillips, who's a, uh, uh, a commentator and a, uh, a, a radio personality, has said about the nature of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and Esau. He says, the Holy Spirit is an awesome judge of character. There's no deceiving him. The Holy Spirit had weighed Esau, and he sums him up with a single word, he's profane. The Greek word uh, means to cross the threshold. It carries the idea of going too far. It means to trample down, to treat something as common, to pollute. The English word that comes from the Latin profanus uh, means to walk out of the temple. So he wraps up his thought and just says Esau had no sacred enclosure in his life, in his heart, in his mind where God was to be worshiped. So who do you think made a better deal? (laughs) I'll I'll trade you your home in the Swiss Alps for this triple bacon cheeseburger. And and Esau was like, what my belly wants, my belly gets. And he makes the trade. Obviously, Jacob may got the better deal. 
because Esau was a profane man. So I've got to ask this question as we read through this text, and that's the question of what appetites, what appetite has control over you? Is it for this world, for the things in this world and of this world, or is it for the things of the next? We're going through uh, Philippians in our college ministry, and I was reminded of this passage out of Philippians 3, where he says, Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction and their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's two categories of people, those who live with their minds and their appetites set on worldly things and those who recognize, no, 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 our citizenship, our citizenship is, is in heaven and it changes uh, the, the, the way we live our lives. We walk by faith and not by sight. See, Esau's appetites were for this world but those in Christ know that all of our physical appetites, all those things that we, would, that we would desire will one day be swallowed up as this world is made new and as our lowly bodies are made new as well. So we walk by faith. Well, because of this incident, Esau earns himself a nickname and simply Edom which meant red, and he would become the father of the Edomites, and the Edomites were a very profane people. They were a people that uh, participated in satanic worship, and God declares in scripture over and over, I hate this people, and I will wipe them out. And if you go to the, the book of Obadiah, you see the prophecy of their demise. But I thought it was important to mention that there was one of the last remaining Edomites that was particularly infamous as he tried to stop God's plan, as he tried to stop this blessing that was prophesied to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, King Herod was an Edomite. And he has all the boys two and under killed in an attempt to stop God's Messiah to stop the promised one, that's Esau's legacy. That's Esau's legacy. So let's fast forward over some years, many years, Isaac becomes a very wealthy man, and Esau has taken two foreign wives, two Hittite wives, and brought their pagan practices into their camp, and it says in the text of them that it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And it seems that Isaac has become even more spiritually short-sighted as, as the years go on. He thinks he's at death's door and he goes to his son Esau and he says, Esau, I want you to go out and I want you to hunt and kill and make that, that, that wonderful gamey stew that I love so much, make it just the way that I, that I like it and bring it back, we're gonna share the meal and then I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna bless you. Now this is the blessing, by the way, that was supposed to go to Jacob. So really what he is saying is, I don't care what God's called me to do here, I'm gonna give you this blessing. So he heads out, um, and oh, by the way, this is worth saying, um, if you look at the ages through the narrative here, um, Isaac lives about another 40 years. 
He has just spiraled into depression in his life and you know, talk about early, life, you know, early retirement, early uh, dismissal of life's responsibilities. That's where he is at at this time. And so Esau heads out to do this while at the same time, this is where the story really gets strange where um, you know, life is stranger than fiction and uh, Rebecca, his wife, has overheard all this. Remember, they're tent dwellers and so she could be outside the tent but hear very clearly the conversation they were having. And so she hatches a plan of her own and she tells her son Jacob, she says, I want you to go and I want you to slaughter two of our young goats and bring the meat back and I'm gonna cook up a meal using all my culinary ability just like uh, your father loves and it's gonna taste and smell like it's, it's, uh, it's food from wild game. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna push you in Esau's clothing so that you smell like Esau out in the field. And then we're gonna take some of that goat skin and we're gonna flip it up upside down so where it's buckskin out. And so I'm gonna put that on your hands and your neck and when dad draws you close to bless you, he's gonna think it's Esau. This is a great plan, she thinks, right? I mean, he's gotten hard of hearing, short, uh, he's uh, very nearsighted now. He's made himself bedridden. It's like, this is gonna work. And I'm sure Jacob's like, uh, I can see a few problems. But they, they, they put the plan together and, um, and send, send, him, send him in. Um, I had to get back to my notes here. I knew I was getting off. But maybe I'm being too hard on, on, on Rebecca. Maybe I'm being too hard on Jacob. I mean, we're in their shoes from time to time. We've been in their shoes where you fear that there is no way that, that God can come through on his promises unless you help him out, you know? God's worked himself into a corner here and there's no way for him to make good on his promises here. So I think we're gonna take things into our own hands. We're gonna bend some rules. Matter of fact, really, under the circumstances, are they really rules or are they just suggestions? You know, I mean, if God were God, he wouldn't let me be, you know, be in this situation to begin with and the scheming begins to go on in our minds in certain situations that we are in in life. We're familiar with that kind of scheming. But here's the thing, faith is living without scheming. Faith is living without scheming. It's trusting that God is going to carry out his plan and it's gonna be a good plan and he doesn't need my help bending the rules to be able to carry it out. He wants me to trust him. He wants me to walk in faith. I mean, we have to ask the question as we look at the scenario, is there another way? Could, could this whole thing have been resolved another way? Like, like, could the blessing have been given to Jacob without all this conniving and scheming going on? There's several things that we can think of. There's many, many other ways that it possibly could have happened. It could have been the communication was maintained between husband and wife, and that as she sees her husband spiraling into depression, she starts talking to him. Says, honey, the, the, some things aren't right here. You don't look good. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta figure this thing out. We gotta talk. Or what, when Esau takes off to go hunt, she could have gone in and said, "Dear, <laughs> do not do this awful thing. 
Like this is a horrible thing. Do not do this thing. You are going to uh, bring terrible things onto our family. Do not do it. Or perhaps he just drops to her knees in prayer and says, God, you've got to show up here, trusting that before the blessing takes place, somewhere during the meal, that maybe God would have got Isaac's attention and reminded him, man, my focus really is on my belly as well. What am I doing? What am I doing? But here's the thing I can tell you, that God's plan was never in jeopardy of failing. God's plan was never in jeopardy of failing. The older would serve the younger. The younger was gonna show himself to be the stronger brother as God got a hold of him in in his grace. But Jacob does go in, he brings the food. Jacob does bless, uh, excuse me, Isaac does bless Jacob. He's suspicious of some things. As you read through the story, there's some suspicions going on. But in the end, he blesses him. And this is the blessing that he received. He says, so may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, a blessing was a big deal. Like, the understanding was what has been bound here on earth has been bound in heaven. What has been loosed on earth has been loosed in heaven. They wouldn't go back on on this blessing. Like, this, this cements it. And so this is a done deal. Jacob has now received the blessing that God had for Jacob to receive. He didn't receive it the way that God would have had it happen, but he had received it. So Jacob makes it out of the tent barely in time for Esau to come back into the tent with his meal and that's when uh, uh, Isaac realizes, man, what has just happened? I've been duped. And it says that he began to shake uncontrollably. Likely he's coming to his senses. Likely he's beginning to realize, oh my gosh, God, God accomplished his sovereign plan and sadly, I wasn't a part of it. Matter of fact, I was working against that plan and yet God accomplished his plan in spite of me, not because of me. How horrible it is when God has to accomplish his plans in life in spite of us. When we miss out on the privilege and the opportunity to participate in the good work that God calls us uh, into. Well, Esau is... He's heartbroken, he begs dad, there's gotta be a blessing for me. His father says, there's really not. What I've just blessed your brother with is all encompassing. He said, but I will say this, the one blessing I will give you is that you will live by the sword the rest of your life. He becomes a man of, of war, a man of battle, and that really characterizes Esau's life um, that, uh, in, in, well into the future. And then Esau's heart Turns and he becomes angry and furious and he vows, he vows to murder Jacob. He's waiting for the time to be right and it seems the time was not gonna come to be right because Isaac, who now seems to have come to his senses, has had a discussion with Rebecca and they're like, we cannot let Jacob choose a wife from here among the Hittites. Let's send him back to, to my family. Let's send him back to my brother Laban, 550 miles away to get hopefully one of Laban's daughters. And so Jacob blesses, uh, or excuse me, Isaac blesses Jacob, this time with the, the blessing that God had given Abraham. 
And God had reiterated to Isaac, and now he is blessing Jacob with that same blessing. And he sends him on, the, on his way, and old homeboy Jacob is probably really, really frightened about now. Because he's the kid that dwelled in the tents. He's not the guy that lived out in the, uh, out in the wild, out in the, uh, the open road. And so he is really, really scared about this journey ahead that was going to take weeks First night of his journey, he comes to a place, he makes camp, finds a a nice smooth stone and lays his head on it and dreams this fantastic dream, this fantastic dream of of a ladder reaching up into the heavens from earth and seeing angels going up and down on this ladder and realizing this is, this is like a gateway into the heavens and then he sees or hears the voice of God who speaks words of blessing over him, over Jacob, words of comfort and words of promise. The next morning when he awakens, he awakens really a bit of a new man. He builds a memorial, he worships, he renames the place Bethel, which meant house of God or gateway of heaven. And many consider this to be the place where Jacob first began to follow after the Lord. Well, weeks go by, Jacob makes it to um, his uncle's place, to Laban's place, and one of the first people he meets is beautiful Rachel. Rachel's the second daughter uh, of Laban and he falls madly in love with her and makes a commitment that he will work for the next seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And what he doesn't realize is that Laban is a a sneakier guy than he is. He's a a better trickster than he is and uh, so he... um, on the night of their wedding, has his oldest daughter, Leah, come in heavily veiled, and he gives Leah to Jacob, and Jacob doesn't realize he's been duped until the next morning when he awakens and realizes what's been done. But I'm sure the irony of his own life is, is rich in his mind as he realizes he did that very same thing, posing as his brother to his own father. So Jacob vows to work another seven years to get uh, Rachel's hand in marriage. And then there's some years that come after that where all these deals are negotiated and renegotiated and he is, becomes a successful um, shepherd, a successful livestock breeder. He makes himself very wealthy and makes Laban very wealthy as well. But comes to a place where it's like, I don't know how I am going to get out of all these conniving deals with Laban. And at that time, the Lord comes to him again, appears and says, it's time to return home. Return to the land that I have promised you and I am going to, I'm gonna bless you there. Trust me and follow me. Only one problem. Along the journey back home is the land of Seir. And in that land, that is where Esau has now moved to and has settled. And the Edomites are there. His people are there. And so Jacob um, realizes, how am I going to get through that land without um, dealing with my brother? So he makes camp. God sends a, a whole host of angels there to that camp sends a whole host of angels there to encourage Jacob, to remind him that he is being protected, that he's in his power. And so Jacob sends a messenger, messengers on ahead to meet Esau. Bring back news. I want to find out, like, what's his heart like these days? Is he still mad at me? Is there any chance we can make peace? And they return and they say, so, um, yeah, Esau's coming and he's going to meet you and he's bringing 400 men with him. So Jacob is really, really nervous about what is gonna go down, what's gonna happen, and so he prays. And I wanna read that prayer to you. It's found in Genesis 32, verse nine. And Jacob said, 
O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and, and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, uh, the mothers and the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What we see in his prayer is a humility. We see um, a, a thankfulness for God's goodness, for God's provision in his life. And he reminds God and himself, he reminds God and himself of God's promises. I think one of the things that I often forget when it comes to prayer is a really important principle and that is that the reason that we pray is not to bend God's plans to our will. The reason we pray is to bend our wills to his plan. Praying God's promises, is, it's, it's confidence shaping, it's, it's faith building, it's heart calming, it's identity changing in our lives. So Jacob sends wave after wave after wave of livestock. He sends a, a gift to his brother. Um, he's become a very wealthy man now and over 500 head of livestock are sent ahead of him the night before. The next morning he awakens early at, awakens early at the Jabbok River and he sends his wives and his servants and his 11 children, his 11 sons on ahead. And he is there alone at the Jabbok River and we're gonna pick it up in verse 22. That same night he rose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip, his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and that you've prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I love how Warren Wiersbe describes the way God comes to Jacob in this scene. He says, God meets us uh, at whatever level that he finds us in order to lift us up to where he wants us to be. So to Abraham, the pilgrim, God came as a traveler. To Joshua, the general, God came as a soldier. But to Jacob, who spent most of his adult life wrestling with people, God came to him as a wrestler. Came as a wrestler. And, I, and, and I, as you read it, you just wonder. I mean, this is having your hip displaced. I, I can't imagine, like, what caused him to so fiercely hang on to God here? Why did he hold so tightly? So many, many years earlier, Esau had said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Of what use is God's blessing to me? 
And now Jacob had grown to the point where he says, I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as dead without your blessing, O God. God had brought Jacob through his grace and through his mercy to a place where he was beginning to understand the end of himself and the beginning of God's love for him, the God's care for him, God's blessing and affection for him. A.W. Tozer says that God will, uh, will, was not able to bless a man until he breaks him of himself. It says in Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Like this is the walk we do. This is the faith walk of our life. That God uh, can be trusted to to be good and God is trusted to be the rewarder of those who seek him by faith. It's amazing that that God invited Jacob into the ring, into the match and allowed Jacob to prevail. Like God could have reached over and just stopped his heart instead of touching his hip. He could have just touched him in the chest and he'd have been gone. But in God's mercy and in God's grace, he lets Jacob live. He lets Jacob prevail is what it says. I love in the middle of the match, he asks, what's your name? And he says, Jacob, realizing that the last time that the Bible text records him answering that question, that's not what he had said. If you remember, what he said was, it is I, Esau, as he deceived his father. See, I'm sure that in this moment, all these names and identities are bouncing around in the heart and the mind of Jacob. Heel grabber, trickster, deceiver, schemer. But then the man had said, your name, your name shall no longer be Jacob. Your name is Israel one who strives with God and prevails. So my question for each of us today is what's your name? So the question that that God asked of Jacob I think is the question that he asks of each of us, the question that he calls each of us to wrestle with. It's a very important question. What is your name? See, we all grow up in imperfect homes. We all grow up with lives that are filled with all kinds of scheming. And so we have names that are filled with all kinds of scheming identities that bounce around inside of us. But God invites every single one of us, every one of us he invites to Bethel, to Jacob's ladder, where we find that it is Jesus who has become the stairway that leads us between from, from, from man to God. And it's through his grace that we enter into the gates of heaven and we are given a new name. And we're given a new identity and we're given a new hope. Let's pray. Father, it amazes me that you allow us to, to step into the ring with you. It, it amazes me that, that, that you would step into the ring with us, that you would wrestle with us. Father, your goodness is amazing that you would allow Jacob to prevail, that you allow us to prevail. Our confidence in your goodness, our confidence in your mercy, Father, is what you long for. You long for us to move from scheming to believing in this life, and I pray that we would. I pray each and every one of us. I believe that there are many things that we are wrestling with today. And I pray, Father, that we would um, bring those into the, into that conversation with you, into our prayers with you, reminding you of the promises that you make 
and claiming them for ourselves and shaping our will around your plans and not your plans around our will. Ask us in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.